0: In London,
1: this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, the best of the serious, the sweet and the salty from across our coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we have the Oscar-nominated director Darren Aronofsky on pushing his audiences and one female actor to their limits, why the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is currently couch surfing, and the Astronomer's Guide to the Perfect Haiku. But let's start with our cover story. Epic fail was our cover line this week. It's the biggest crisis in Facebook's history. Last year, bookies were offering decent odds on Mark Zuckerberg winning America's presidency in 2020. It's since emerged that Facebook let Cambridge Analytica acquire data for about 50 million of its users. Mr. Zuckerberg's halo has come crashing down.
2: Mr. Zuckerberg took five days to reply, and when he did, he conceded that Facebook had let its users down in the past, but seemed not to have grasped that its business faces a wider crisis of confidence. After months of talk about propaganda and fake news, politicians in Europe and increasingly America see Facebook as out of control and in denial. Congress wants him to testify. Expect a roasting.
1: It's not that Facebook has changed. Its users are just waking up to the reality of its business model.
2: Facebook's business relies on three elements. Keeping users glued to their screens, collecting data about their behaviour and convincing advertisers to pay billions of dollars to reach them with targeted ads. The firm has an incentive to promote material that grabs attention and to sell ads to anyone. Its culture melds a ruthless pursuit of profit with a panglossian and narcissistic belief in its own virtue.
1: That halo was already tarnished.
2: The episode fits an established pattern of sloppiness towards privacy, tolerance of inaccuracy and reluctance to admit mistakes. In early 2017, Mr Zuckerberg dismissed the idea that fake news had influenced the election as pretty crazy. In September, Facebook said Kremlin-linked firms had spent a mere $100,000 to buy 3,000 adverts on its platform, failing at first to mention that 150 million users had seen free posts by Russian operatives.
1: So now Facebook is going to have its wings clipped.
2: Europe is inflicting punishment by a thousand cuts, from digital taxes to antitrust cases, and distrustful users are switching off. The American customer base of Facebook's core social network has stagnated since June 2017. The network effect that made Facebook ever more attractive to new members as it grew could work in reverse if it starts to shrink.
1: Mr Zuckerberg has apologised, but we argued he doesn't seem to grasp that Facebook faces a real crisis of faith.
2: As users become better informed, the alchemy of taking their data without paying and manipulating them for profit may die. Firms may need to compensate people for their data or let them pay to use platforms ad-free. Profits won't come as easily, but the alternative is stark. If Facebook ends up as a regulated utility with its returns on capital capped, its earnings may drop by 80%. How would you like that, Mr. Zuckerberg?
1: Facebook needs not just to repent but to reform. To find out how, you could always find us on Facebook at facebook.com/the Economist or elsewhere. If that doesn't appeal, you can pick up a paper copy from your local newsstand, in the knowledge that your inky fingers will leave only temporary prints. How much can change in one generation? In Russia, Vladimir Putin has been elected for a fourth term as president, with a solidly unsurprising 77% of the vote. In the week ahead, our Current Affairs podcast, Arkady Ostrovsky reported from Moscow on the young elites waiting impatiently to become Russia's next leaders. Olga Motinskaya is 36. She was Mr Putin's direct translator for 10 years before resigning, she says, in repugnance. Last year, she was elected as a local councillor on a pledge to empower, inform and engage her voters.
2: What is your main issue or disagreement with the previous generation of Russian rulers?
0: They failed at one very important task. They were unable to get to terms with our past We're still very uncertain about our history, whether Stalin was the greatest leader of all times and according to all the polls he was, whether he was a tyrant. Was the Soviet Union the golden age of Russia or was it Russia before the revolution that was destroyed by the Soviet Union? We still struggle with this identity crisis And I think it was up to the previous generation to deal with it. And this is what they failed to do. And this is what we will have to do.
1: You can hear the rest of Cardi's report on the generation of Gorbachev's grandchildren by subscribing to Economist Radio on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you like, really. The week ahead is published every Friday. My guest this week on our chat show, The Economist Asks, is one of the most provocative directors of his generation in Hollywood. His films include "Black Swan," "The Fighter," and recently "Mother," and his work divides audiences with its unforgiving mix of surrealism, high emotion, and outright violence. So I asked him just how far he's willing to push his audiences and his actors.
0: The bottom line comes is reaction, you know that I just I don't want people leaving a film without reaction.
1: You'd rather take the love-it-or-hate-it risk than them going out and going, you know, that was fine.
0: I don't think it's a risk. I think that uh, having people love it and having people hate it is all part of the process.
1: And reactions, of of course, can mature over time, we we should say that. And Darren, I remember writing about Black Swan when it came out. You pushed your actors there uh, to the brink, and you, you often do, actually, still do. I think Jennifer Lawrence has said that she tore some quite big muscles, hyperventilating with emotion on Mother Is that necessary to push actors to the point of physical injury or distress?
0: Well, you never want injury to happen ever. The first and most important part of my set is safety. And it's all about safety. But actors want to emote. That's why they do this job. Who'd
1: be an actor, eh? That was Darren Aronofsky on The Economist Asks, revealing all. Now, how much do you know about cobalt? The mineral plays a crucial, invisible role in most of our lives. It's used to make the batteries you need for every smartphone. For just one electric car, however, you need about 10 kilograms of the stuff. Demand for electric cars has sent the value of cobalt rocketing. Our energy correspondent, Henry Tricks came on to Money Talks, our finance and economics podcast, to tell us about the race to control a suddenly precious resource.
0: So for quite a long time now, China has been uh, taking control of bits of the cobalt market. And this uh, this deal gives it a, a huge chunk. Glencore is ramping up production over the next couple of years in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is where about half of the world's cobalt is mined. And it's giving a large chunk of that production to GEM. But just to put it in context... The amount that it's giving it is about the equivalent of 50% of what the world produced in terms of cobalt last year. So that that is a lot of cobalt. It raises the question about whether China is actually uh, getting to the point where it could start cornering the market.
1: Money Talks is published every Tuesday. And if Economist Radio helps fuel your week, do give us a rating on your podcast app. It gives us a boost too. Next up, Justin Trudeau's official home is standing empty. He, his wife and their three children are currently staying with a neighbour, the Governor-General. A piece in our Americas section explained why nobody wants to live in the Prime Minister's palace.
2: Most heads of government have an official residence. It is normally an uncontroversial perk. Not so in Canada. Since 1951, the country's Prime Ministers have lived in 24 Sussex, a 34-room limestone mansion in Ottawa.
1: Sounds lovely. The problem is, the place is crumbling. It's been 70 years since anyone gave it more than a lick of paint.
2: Ceilings and walls are impregnated with asbestos, a mineral so carcinogenic that Canada will ban its export next month. Some of the paint is lead-based. The place is infested with mice, which may be why Mr Trudeau's predecessor, Stephen Harper, liked cats. The Auditor-General warned a decade ago that the plumbing was clapped out, The 50-year-old knob and tube wiring was near full capacity and heat was escaping through loose windows.
1: Yes, some of us recognise that description from our home front. But Trudeau is not the first PM reluctant to take the flak for spending millions of taxpayer dollars doing up
2: his house. Jean Chrétien, who governed from 1993 to 2003, used buckets to catch rain. He blew a fuse when he plugged in a heater to supplement the feeble central heating. Paul Martin, his successor, made light of his discomfort on a satirical television show by visiting Canadian Tire, a hardware store, to buy plastic wrap for the windows. Mr Harper, a fiscal conservative, said his family would wear sweaters to ward off drafts. When he left, his moving boxes carried mould warnings.
1: Short of demolishing it and starting again, Mr Trudeau seems unsure about how to proceed. Luckily, Canadians have some
2: suggestions. A home makeover reality television show called Reno My Reno offered to help fix the house up.
1: Mr Trudeau may be hankering after something a little more modern. But in Japan, many young couples are yearning for a return to the good old days. An article in our Asia section heard from some of them.
2: There was nothing wrong with Chika and Takeshi Otta's life in Osaka, Japan's liveliest city, where she worked as a shop manager and he as a driver. But a visit to Tasmania in Australia convinced Chika of the superiority of rural life. In May last year, with two tiny children in tow, they moved to Shimanto, a sprawling town in Shukoku, the smallest of Japan's four main islands. It is a risky choice, but we are happy, says Chika.
1: They're part of a growing number of urban young professionals packing up and heading for the paddy fields.
2: There are no up-to-date nationwide statistics, but in 2017, 33,165 people contacted the Furusato Kaiki Shian Centre, an NGO supporting people who want to move to rural areas, a more than three-fold increase on 2013.
1: The rustic revival seems to be more than just a passing trend.
2: It is thanks in part to public programs such as the one that sends young people to work in rural areas for two or three years, in the hope they will then settle. Also important, says Takumi Odagiri of Meiji University, were the earthquake and tsunami in 2011, which killed some 18,000 people. The disasters caused young people to reevaluate their lives, he says. Many are looking for peace and quiet, or simply cheaper homes.
1: And they're not just relocating. These young people are putting down their smartphones and rolling up their sleeves.
2: Many go into farming or learn traditional crafts. You and Miki Kikuchi left their jobs as a factory worker and a nurse. He is now training to be a blacksmith while she hunts game.
1: Finally, the power of Japanese traditional culture was evident in the most unexpected of places this week. In our science and technology section, an article described the excruciating difficulty of condensing months of research into the perfect one-sentence abstract for an academic paper. But in 2001, Alan Tryman of the Lunar and Planetary Institute in Houston had some inspiration.
0: To communicate the essence of a paper entitled The ALTA II Spectrometer, a tool for teaching about light and remote sensing, he wrote down Bright leaves on dark sky. Beyond the brilliant rainbow, vision fades away. Mr. Tryman was onto something. The astronomical followers of Basho have multiplied until this year more than 200 of the papers at LPSC have such haiku summaries. Some are purely instructive. Counting craters is easier when you use a supercomputer, others are philosophical. Absence of voices, lost paths, lost thoughts. Lost ideas, who we are missing. And some might actually be poetry. This is Thermal Moonquakes
1: Implications for Surface Properties by Renée Weber.
0: Sunrise and sunset, cracking, creaking, and rumbling. The moon never rests. So we'd
1: love to hear your haikus about The Economist, about podcasts, about Economist podcasts. We might even read them out. We're at radio at economist.com and on Twitter at Economist Radio. And remember, you can read and listen to more of all the stories we've featured here online at economist.com. So in 17 syllables, pure haiku form, that's it for Tasting Menu. In London, this is The Economist.